Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. We are on our way to New York to talk to Reina Marder Genting. After practicing law for almost 25 years, she has become a published author of three novels, the most recent one coming out this October. Reina, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for your time. I'm super happy to talk to you. You and your husband are high school sweethearts. That's so romantic. So, <laughs> what is your advice for a long and healthy marriage? Wow. So, you know, I think for us, it was a little bit different than it might be for other couples. But although we did start dating kind of a little, little bit right after high school, we were friends in high school. We were separated. We went to different universities. So we were apart for six years, um, even though we were still dating. And I think that really set us up for a wonderful relationship because we had to work so hard and we had to really want to be together. It wasn't, nothing was convenient and nothing was easy. And, you know, so I, I guess I think putting in the effort is really what's the key to keeping things going is to knowing that you want to be together and that's the most important thing. And, you know, everything else will work itself out. Yeah, I agree with you. When I met my husband, we lived in a different continent. I was in Middle East and he was in the U.S. And basically to see each other was so difficult. We used to, you know, meet in different countries. We spent three years and a half in this situation. But I believe also that as things were not too easy, we had to wait, but in the end, we got married after three years and a half. Rina, you had a long legal career, mostly focused on indigent clients on appeal from felony conviction. So what initially drew you to becoming an attorney? Uh, interesting. So I was um, in college. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I had a very good liberal arts education, like so many people get. I majored in philosophy. Um, and that's not something that you can really go out and get a job. You're not really going to be a philosopher afterwards. So um, I really had to figure out what I could do with the skills that I had. And I didn't really know that much about the law. I didn't have anybody in my family that was a lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. So it was kind of more trying to figure out what I might be good at. I, I knew I liked to write and I knew there was a lot of writing involved in being a lawyer. Um, and I knew I, I found those kind of subjects approachable. You know, reading was not a problem for me. You could give me a lot, a lot to read and it would be okay. So, um, so that's really what pulled me in. And once I got there, um, I started working in one of the law clinics at the law school where we had individual clients, even though we were just still law students. And we, the one I was in happened to help kids um, in different educational uh, crises that they were having. And, and that was really impactful on me. Once I started doing that and realizing that I could really help people, you know, individuals and not, 
not big companies and not, you know, nothing fancy, just um, sitting down across the table with parents and kids and trying to figure out what I could do that would make their lives better. Um, that, that really kind of set the stage for me wanting to do some kind of public interest law when I got out. What was the most challenging part of your job working for the public defender's office? So I think the most challenging part was maybe not what you would expect. I, I was doing appeals, so it wasn't like I was actually meeting with my clients. Um, they were, you know, mm -hmm. they were already incarcerated on the cases that they had been convicted of the crimes, um, what they had been convicted of. So for me, a lot of the challenge came in trying to figure out how to present their case in a way that would humanize them, right? These were mostly men who had really, you know, for the large part, been convicted of some pretty terrible things. And sometimes it, it wasn't right. Sometimes their legal issue was strong and I could dive into it that way. But sometimes their legal issue was not strong and I still had to represent them because that's what you do in a public defender's office. You don't get to pick and choose which clients you represent. So, you know, sometimes I had to really dig deep for what, what I could do for this person that would make them appear redeemable to the court, you know, somebody that somehow deserved some kind of second chance. And I, I and that, that was difficult always. And it became more difficult. <laughs> I would say, you know, I was there for a long time. And at about year 18, it became really kind of too difficult. I thought you could just choose uh, which person you would like to you know, I don't, and I don't know how it works in other places and in other countries. In, in New York, every person who's convicted of a crime is entitled to one appeal. So if they can't afford an attorney and all the people we represented, as you noted, were indigent. So no, none of them could afford an attorney. So each person that, you know, came through our office, it was, they were sent to us by the state and they were entitled to one appeal. So, you know, you could read through their whole record. You could read 3000 pages of trial transcript and not really have much to say for them, but you'd still have to figure out some way to present their case to the court. Mm -hmm. And why did you decide to quit your job as a lawyer? I'm so curious about it. <laughs> um, so a lot of it was, was, as I said, I just, at the end, it sort of became like, I couldn't tell the story of these people anymore in the way that I thought needed to be told just from an emotional point of view. And I didn't want to ever, you know, not do the job in the way it needed to be done. Um, and I still, I still volunteer as an attorney. So I'm still, you know, I'm doing other um, types of things in the law, but I didn't feel like I could do that anymore. And, and one of the things that really propelled me to writing my first novel was this feeling that I could maybe make up some of the backstory that I didn't know about these guys and, and kind of answer some of the questions for myself about why they did the things they did. And the basis of my first novel was actually a case that I had worked on, but I made up all, you know, I made up all the story behind the story. I made up the story of his, his family life. I made mm -hmm. up the story of his, you know, first love. I made up all sorts of things that I would never have known about the people that I was actually representing. And, you know, mm -hmm. and some, and those things inform what you are as a person and who you turn out to be. And, you know, in real life, I never got to see those things because they weren't part of the trial record. But when you're writing fiction, 
you can find out what you need to find out. Yeah, you had to use your imagination. You have one book titled My Name is Layla, which is about a girl who has dyslexia. What was your inspiration for this character and her journey? Um, I was taking a class on writing for children, and I really had no idea what I wanted to be working on. I had already finished my first novel, and I was waiting for that to come out. Mm-hmm. And so I started this class, and I started to imagine a, you know, a teenager, a young teenager, what, what could be so frustrating for her that she would be in a situation where she would kind of do, make a terrible choice, and that would propel her to get the help that she needed. That was kind of the background in my head because I was, I was very used to working on criminal law cases. And also I had done a lot of work with juvenile delinquency cases when I first came out of law school. And so I was trying to get back into the mindset of like a 13, 14 year old person. And, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about empathy and resilience and all these kinds of things. And And there's a lot of kids books, I think that kind of address I don't want to say more obvious situations, but situations where, you know, you can see that you should be kind to the person, right? There's something about them that is mm-hmm. calling to you to not bully them, but instead to actually maybe exercise your better judgment <laughs> and be kind to them. And what I was interested in is what if it's not obvious? What if the thing that is going on with that person is not something you can see just by looking at them, right? So you know, like there's a wonderful book called Wonder. You probably know it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. But the thing that the kid is is dealing with in that book is very obvious. As soon as you look at this child, you see that he has issues. He has a craniofacial issue. And, you know, and and everyone is either going to be kind or cruel, right? Mm -hmm. But, But with this book, what I was trying to get across is dyslexia isn't like that. Dyslexia is can be incredibly crushing and incredibly damaging to your self-esteem and and you can feel like you will never succeed and and imagine not being able to read or not being able to read easily but you can't see that you can't see it by looking at her she doesn't even know herself what is going on with her you know at the beginning of the book by the end of the book as i say she's made some bad choices and they're kind of like a cry for help and she ends up getting the help that she needs but that was kind of what I was really interested in is how do you get, how do you get people to recognize that everyone has something going on with them and, and you need to be on the lookout for it, even when you can't see it, obviously. I worked with kids for many, many years. And most of them were autistic kids or who work also with kids with dyslexia. And sometimes people just thought they were hyperactive kids. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes they are hyperactive because it's very difficult to, for them to pay attention to things. Yeah, they, right. and some people just think they are lazy. Lazy or daydreaming yeah, or they are stupid. Stupid is what I was going to say, no? And most have average or above intelligence. And Layla has some difficulties. The reading, the writing, she has, she has trouble with it all. Um, and in, in the book, she also has a lot of family issues she's dealing with, you know, which somewhat contribute to it. She has a, a mother who is working very hard, but she's a single mom and she's an emergency room nurse. So she's working night shifts. So she's, when she's home during the day, 
she's kind of passed out. And, you know, that's not really conducive to helping Layla figure out what's going on with her school work. And the father has left the family. um, And we find out in the end, not to give much away, but we find out in the end that he also has struggled with reading his whole life. And had had she known about that, because there's a big genetic component in dyslexia, and had she known that, you know, maybe she would have been evaluated much sooner before she kind of suffered for all those years. So, um, yeah, so she has a lot, a lot going on in the book, but she has friends, good friends and a, and a brother who has her back and it's a sweet book. And I, I think a lot of people are, you know, are relating to it and are getting a lot out of it. And I think, you know, teachers, parents, I think a, a lot of people would benefit from, from reading yeah. it. It's very important to have books like this. How did you come up with the title of your book? Yeah, I came up with the title mostly because she, um, in the book, she's given the name Layla by her father. He's a big Eric Clapton fan. And, you know, a lot of people will know the song Layla. Um, And because she's been given the name by her father, her mother and her brother won't use it. They don't call her Layla. They call her Monk, which is a nickname. And she kind of goes along with that because she understands why they don't want to call her Layla. It's too reminding them of the father who kind of ditched them. But on the other hand, like, you know, your name becomes really a big part of your identity. And it's, it's, you know, it's who you are and you want to be proud of yourself. And when she kind of a little bit gets some more insight into her father at the end, she's able to reclaim her name. And she, you know, she says to her mother and her brother, my, you know, my name is Layla and you can call me Layla now. And, you know, and they respect that and they do. And, um, you know, and, and there's a lot of ways that we all need to reclaim our identity all through life. It's not just our names, but it's, you know, your name can be a big, a big part of that, I think. So. Yeah, exactly. And Lila is a beautiful name. And I believe you learned a lot about this subject. Yeah, I had to do quite a bit of research about dyslexia. Um, A lot of people have asked me after reading the book, whether, you know, either I was dyslexic or my children are dyslexic, and it's not and I needed to really learn about it. And I wanted to make it accurate. I, I didn't pretend to be an expert. I haven't learned enough so that I know how it's really treated or you know I I don't know that much but I wanted to make it enough so that I um, you know would be convincing to people reading it and especially since I knew a lot of people reading it would actually themselves be dyslexic so I didn't want to say anything that was not right Um, so I learned just a lot about dyslexia that you know surprised me I I had no idea how common it was it's it's apparently affects almost 25 percent of the population which is a huge number um it also people seem they have the misconception that it affects more boys than girls and that's not actually true but I think what happens is as you were talking about with the kind of hyperactivity a lot of boys tend to act out more um with their dyslexia and so they may get noticed more and they may get evaluated more than the girls do because the girls maybe compensate for it by being very well behaved or by, you know, working extra hard or whatever it is that, you know, a girl might do in reaction to that as opposed to a boy. Um, In the book, Layla actually does act out in, in a way that is destructive. And, you know, and I think that that gets her the help that she needs. It's a little, it's a little unusual because that's not usually how the girls go about it. But, um, but for me, that was kind of like, you know what, 
she's a girl, she could do that too. Like if that's what it takes <laughs> to get things going in her direction in the right way, then that's, that's fine. Um, so yeah, I just, I guess I would say I learned a lot about dyslexia and also a lot, you know, how many people reading the book have told me, you know, oh, my brother's dyslexic or my mother is dyslexic, you know, ev everywhere you go that people read it, they, you know, relate to it because they know somebody who's been struggling. 20% of the population is a lot. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Reina, this book is directed to ages 10 and up, yeah? So it seems like it could be a sort of self-help, relatable book for any child going through this. So what message do you hope kids will take away from reading this book? So I hope they take away the message that there's hope for them, right? That they can find a way to make this aspect of their book, of their book, of their life um, work better for them. I, I hope also it's read, and I think it is being read by kids who don't struggle with this particular issue. Maybe they don't have a learning difference, but just the idea that everybody has some issue, right? You have no idea when you look, you know, talk to somebody or you encounter somebody, maybe they have a financial issue at home and you don't know about it, or maybe they have a parent with a chronic illness at home and you don't know about it and you know there's or or a mental illness that is being you know not addressed there, there's so many things out there that people are dealing with nobody has a perfect life and you know one of the things that happens in the book is that Layla is is often looking across the street where her neighbor and friend Sammy lives and a boy her age and you know, she thinks they have the perfect life, right? She thinks she sees them have dinner at the same time every day. She says, you can smell how clean their clothes are from across the street. Like she kind of has this vision of them. But in fact, everybody has something that they're dealing with. And she finds out that Sammy has his own learning issues. And she finds out, you know, not everything that you see is as it is. And so I, I hope that, you know, kids, all, of all stripes will read it and feel like, you know, understood and also feel like they need to keep their eyes out for how they can help another person because that's, that's really what it's about. I mean, it's about people reaching out and I hope that's what they'll get out of it. This is, this is very good and it reminded me like an expression we say in Portuguese. We say that the, the neighbor's grass is always greener than ours. Right. 
don't know how to say it in English. No, that's we say it too. It's a, a pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and working as a lawyer, I'm sure you had to deal with situations that did not go the way you intended. As a writer, you also have to deal with people's opinion about your work, of course. So how do you deal with disappointment and persevere? You know, it's hard, as you say, whenever you put something creative out into the world, some people are going to love it and some people are either going to just not get it or they're not going to like it. And at some point, you kind of just have to hope for the best <laughs> and, you know, hope that you reach more people that are open to what you're saying. And, you know, the, the ones that have criticism, sometimes it's a, it's a critique that you need to take on board. And sometimes it's something that you just have to say, you know what, it wasn't, it wasn't for them. And, you know, and that's fine. And, you know, I think writing, you know, as you know, like it's, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a tremendous amount that goes into it kind of behind the scenes. <laughs> um, there's a tremendous amount that goes into the business of it, the promoting, the, you know, meeting with people, trying to get your book out there. This year has been nuts with the pandemic. I mean, here in the States, you know, um, I know in Europe for sure, but here as well. And, you know, this book, Layla came out in January, kind of right still smack in the middle of the pandemic. And it was, you know, it's been very difficult. It's been difficult to get around with it. The schools are really not no. The ones that are open are not dealing with authors wanting to come and do something special for the kids for half an hour. They just don't have the patience or the bandwidth for, you know, how are we going to work this into our schedule now? So, you know, that's been disappointing, but I'm, I'm hopeful that when the school year starts up in September and things are back to normal and kids are in class, then I'll, you know, I'll be able to do more visits and more, you know, promotion mm -hmm. that way. But, you know, it's hard. Yes, it is. And I hope things get back to normal as soon as possible. So we'll be able to go to the libraries, to go to school and to schools and to show our books. So I read this quote from Mandy Hale and she says, change can be scary, but you know what's scarier? Allowing fear to stop you from growing, evolving, and progressing. So, Reina, do you agree with Mandy Hale? <laughs> I do, I do. I mean, and, and it has been scary at times. You feel like, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in school and in practice, you know, developing one aspect of my life and something that I, you know, I loved it. It wasn't like, you know, I always tell the story, there was a woman in my first year law school class who always wanted to be a novelist and she made it through the first year of law school and then she dropped out. And by the time we graduated, she had published a novel, but that was what she wanted to do. She wasn't ever really committed to being a lawyer. <laughs> I don't know what she was doing there, but she really wanted to be a novelist. And, you know, that wasn't my story. I wasn't sort of like a closet novelist who was masquerading as a lawyer. I, I wanted to be a lawyer. And, you know, I feel like I did it for a good long time. And as I say, I still volunteer and it will always be part of my life. And, you know, if you read my first book or the book that's coming out in October, it, they're, they're law, you know, they're heavily 
law-based. And, you know, that's what I, that's a lot of what I know about. And that's the environment that I understand. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I don't regret ever doing what I did, but sometimes you do really need a change. And this was like, this was a huge change for me. I mean, I feel like I'm living a totally different life now. I mean, who would have thought I would be sitting here talking to you about novels like that would never, you know, in a million years have occurred to me. So yeah, I do think sometimes you just have to take the plunge and say, you know, now I'm going to try to do something different. We need to have courage to face our fears. And I see that you are publishing a new novel. Both are the true. So I believe you are publishing it next month. Yes, it'll be available for pre-order on June 7th. So that's incredibly exciting for me. Um, So it's a story of a family court judge who is uh, 39 years old and she has never been married and has no children. And she is learning, she's recently appointed to the family court and she's kind of putting all her energy into trying to control the chaotic families that come before her um, in New York City and dealing with all the different issues, you know, that one deals with as a family court judge. Um, and she's so involved in that she gets blindsided when her old her own boyfriend leaves the relationship without any notice. And it's, um, it's told from both of their perspectives uh, and alternating chapters. And you know, it's, a, it's about love and family and figuring out who you are and um, you know, all the permutations of family life that, that go on. And it's, I think it's a good story. It's, um, you know, you're kind of rooting for them. You're trying to figure out whether they're going to end up together or apart and how how they will go on from where they've been. And Brina, can we find your books on Amazon? Yes. And what's your first book name? The first book is called Unreasonable Doubts. Unreasonable Doubts is the first one? That's the first one. And the second one? And the second one is My Name is Layla. And the third one is Both Are True. But Both Are True won't be up until next week. But when you're listening to this, maybe it's already happened. It will be. Okay. And can you tell us your contacts? So the website is just Raina Martyr Genton, as one word, RainaMartyrGenton.com. Mm-hmm. Um, the books are all up on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles. Um, if you're in the States, I know you could, you know, ask for them in any independent bookstore and they'll order for you. Um, I'm happy to, to hear from my readers. I love that. So I'm just at Raina at RainaMartyrGenton.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you can find And I hope our listeners read your books and also write reviews because that, it's so important for us. Yeah. That would be incredibly helpful. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh-huh. That's how you really get going, especially on Amazon. It's very, very important um, yeah. to have reviews. Raina, it was a pleasure to talk with you. You were like so sweet. (laughs) Thank you. Great to be here. Okay. And enjoy the beautiful weather in New York because I'm sure the weather is getting better now. We're getting there next week. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.
Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.